If you have your Bibles, Matthew chapter 8. We're going to wrap up chapter 8 this week, and then you're going to get a couple weeks off from me. Um, Tony's going to come preach chapter, the first few verses of chapter 9 next week, and then the next week he's going to preach uh, another sermon, not in the book of Matthew. You're going to get a break from Matthew, and I'll be out of town that week. But uh, if you have your Bibles today, let's wrap up chapter 8. Um, as you're turning there, I just, I just want to share this as kind of a, a transition into our sermon this morning. Um, when people ask me uh, what kind of church is Journey, uh, they're usually asking what denomination are you affiliated with or, or they might be asking essentially what do you do as a church or what do you believe as a church. Uh, I've been having a lot more of these conversations lately being on the chamber uh, board. Where I go to all these mixers and people are handing out business cards. By the way, somebody should order uh, some more business cards. Um, and so uh, it's a great opportunity. People are like, where are you at? What do you believe? And well, tell me a little bit about your church. And recently when people ask me, start asking me questions about our church, I simply just say this. When they're like, what kind of church are you? I just say, we're a Jesus-pursuing church. Um, now, we do have a longer answer. Like, we talk a lot about being gospel-centered and spirit-empowered and heaven-focused. We even have a mission statement, right? And it's, it's a good mission statement. It's, it's a mission statement we want to live by when it says we're a family of servant missionaries committed to displaying and declaring the good news of Jesus through our everyday lives. We love that statement because in one paragraph, it tells whoever we're speaking to who we are, what we do, and how we do it. And I love it. But sometimes you have to unpack that a little bit more. Uh, and I've noticed that sometimes in these mixers that I go to, people are not looking for a paragraph answer. <laughs> in fact, they probably don't even want an answer. They're like, who are you? Okay, I didn't really care, but go ahead. Uh, and they're ready to move on. So lately, I just, I basically just give them this one sentence answer. So I have just started telling people we are a Jesus-pursuing church trying to live like Jesus lived. And uh, that takes away all the, the, the whatever negative or positives of denominational experiences they've had. It just kind of lets puts it all on the table about, hey, we are. And, and by the way, that doesn't take away from being gospel-centered because to be gospel-centered, you have to be Jesus-centered. And, and, and it doesn't take away from being spirit of power because we can't live as Jesus lived unless we have the same spirit indwelling us that, that indwelled him. And it certainly doesn't take away from us focusing on heaven. It's just a shorter, more clear, and concise way to express who we are and what we do uh, when people just want a 10-second answer rather than a paragraph answer. And I, and, I, and I say all of that because I just, maybe it's something you can start telling people that, hey, we're just a, we're just a Jesus-pursuing church. We're pursuing Jesus. We want to live as Jesus lived. And I believe the key for us to be successful and our pursuit of Jesus is twofold. We must first be worshipers of Jesus. We must be worshipers of Jesus. And secondly, we must be obeyers of Jesus. And I think that order matters. Worshipers of Jesus, obeyers of Jesus. I believe the order there is crucial. We, we worship Jesus for who he is and what he has done on our behalf. Then we obey Jesus by doing as he did for us and we do so from the overflow of our worship of him. There's nothing I will say today more important than what I just said there. It is so important that we live in obedience to Christ from the overflow of our worship of Christ. If we keep that order, worship obedience, worship obedience, if we keep this order, we won't, number one, burn out. 
Nobody in the history of the church has burnt out from ministering from the overflow of their worship. Always, this is a bold statement, always our worship dries up and we keep ministering from a place of strength until there's no strength left. That is burnout. You show me a Christian that has walked away from their faith, I'll show you a Christian that quit worshiping way before they quit obeying. And they continue to come to church from what they knew, not from what God's doing, what God's showing them, but, but not from their overflow. They just, they just kept coming for a little while. Maybe they kept ministering. Maybe they kept preaching from the talents and the strengths that God's given them. And slowly, slowly but surely, they're beginning to dry up and it won't be long before they burn out. Number two, so we either burn out or number two, we stay and serve, but we do so out of duty rather than delight and we become bitter, which might be worse than burnout because spiritually you're in the same place, burnout and bitterness. Spiritually you are in the same place, but you choose to stay and make everyone else around you miserable as well, right? Well, if I'm suffering for Jesus, everybody else is gonna suffer for him too, right? My point is this, balance is very important when it comes to pursuing Jesus. Worship and obedience. Our worship must shape our obedience. So if we are a Jesus-pursuing people who want to live like Jesus lived, then we must consume ourselves with studying the life of Jesus to know him better, to learn him better, and to love him more. We can't live like Jesus if we don't know who he is and how he lived. And you can't live for Jesus today on what you learned yesterday. We have to continue to allow Jesus, the spirit of God, as we study him and as we, as we just strive to know him better, to minister to us, and then we minister to others through the overflow of what he is doing for us. Therefore, the greatest tool, I believe, for us as a church is the gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. These are eyewitness accounts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's crucial that we do the work of agonizing and pouring over the gospel, studying not only to show ourselves approved, but most importantly, to grasp the truths of Jesus so that we can pattern our lives, so that we can emulate him and how we live our lives. I believe our study of Matthew is a perfect opportunity for us to lean in. And yes, we're taking a longer and a deeper look at the gospels, but that's okay because it's important that we know him. I don't think it does us any good if, if, we, if we always just do glance overs, right? There's nothing wrong with glance overs. Sometimes we'll cover an entire chapter or several chapters and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. But, but listen, if we're going to be like, if we're going to learn to live like Jesus lived, we got to get down into the, to the dirty ditches of verse by verse study of who he was and what he did and let him speak to us from it. Asking questions like, where did he go? What did he say? What did, what did he do? What did he seem to care about? What, what did Jesus prioritize? What made him angry? What made him go, wow? Like there's not a whole lot of wow moments in Jesus' ministry, but we've covered a few of them just in chapter seven. 
Usually the only thing that wowed Jesus is when common folk like you and I showed just this really big faith and trust in who he is. What made him mad? What made him angry? How did he deal with popularity? How did he deal with sorrow? How did he respond to persecution? These are all questions that we have to ask because these are all things that we experience, right? And we need to know what he did and how he did it. So the theme over the past few weeks of our study of Matthew has been spotlighting the authority of Jesus. We've been looking at how he's had authority over disease. He came off the mountain from five, six, and seven, this Sermon on the Mount, he preaches this glorious sermon, and then he walks off the mountain, and he sees this leper. Remember the leper, Lord, if you are willing, I, have, I believe that you can. Jesus goes, man, I, I do desire to heal you, and he heals the leper, and then he heals the centurion's servant, then he heals Peter's mother-in-law. And then, again, just look at, the, at uh, chapter 8. He, he heals all of these unnamed men and women, boys and girls, who, who come to him. He heals them of all of their diseases in chapter 8. And then last week, we saw that not only does he have authority over disease, but he has authority over storms, like physical storms. He was asleep. They wake him up. He, gets, he walks to the front of the boat and rebukes the storms, and immediately there is a calmness. That happens. And we, we in this room can take comfort in that, knowing that our Lord has authority over everything in the physical realm. Listen, this doesn't make it easy. It just makes it easier to know this. Nothing touches us that doesn't have permission from Jesus to touch us. I know that doesn't make it like, okay, then, then I'm okay with this disease. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying there is some comfort in knowing that there is nothing. It might catch the doctor off guard. It might catch you off guard, but it does not catch Jesus off guard. And it's not that he willed it. It's not that he said, oh, yeah, I'm going to bring down disease on them. We live in a broken world. We live in a diseased world from Genesis 3, the, the curse of sin, right? But you can rest assured that nothing has touched you that Jesus didn't allow to touch you. And this is comforting too. Nothing can stay that he commands to leave you. That's, yeah, clap. That's good, yeah. Nothing can stay that he asks or commands to go. So today, Matthew, that's the first time I ever got an applause. Not me, but the truth of what I just said. That's, that's good. That's good. A little embarrassing. Oh, I'm sorry. We're not sorry, Lord. We clap when we are reminded of the good things that you have done for us. Today, Matthew shifts from Jesus' authority over the natural world to his authority over the supernatural world. Not only does Jesus have power over disease and death, but today we're going to see that Jesus has power over demons. Matthew chapter 8, let's start reading in verse 28. Just read the story. It's just six verses. When Jesus arrived on the other side of the lake in the region of the Gadarenes, two men who were possessed by demons met him. They came out of the tombs and they were so violent that no one could go through that area. They began screaming at him, why are you interfering with us, son of God? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding in the distance. So the demons begged, if you cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. And then Jesus commanded, all right, go. So the demons came out of the men 
and entered the pigs, and the whole herd plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned in the water. And the herdsmen fled to the nearby town, telling everyone what had happened to the demon-possessed men. Then the entire town came out to meet Jesus, but they begged him to go away and leave them alone. Just six verses, but it's six verses that are telling an overarching story of God invading a forsaken place to deliver forsaken men from a forsaken evil. And there's five characters, some could argue six, but there's five characters from this story, and each one is telling their own story. And so for our observation this morning, I just want us to walk through each character and pick out some truths from this text. First, we are introduced to two men whom we will never know their names. They will forever be known by their condition of being possessed by demons. How would you like that to be your testimony? Nobody knows your name. They just know your, your condition, the, the worst condition you could possibly be. Now, demons are the second character that's introduced in this story, and so we're going to cover both of these at the same time. I don't know if I've ever preached on demons, and so let's just take a moment here. What are demons? Who are they? Where did they come from? Well, there are scriptures, and uh, Jeff's going to put them on the screen for you to study later, these uh, specifically, Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28, Revelations 12, that give us greater insight uh, into the reason and the identity of demons. But in a nutshell, let me wrap it up here by just saying those passages reveal that Lucifer was a created angel that led a rebellion against God in heaven. Lucifer, who was created by God, is this beautiful angel of music, angel of worship, wanted to be God. And somehow he rallied a third of heaven's angels to join the rebellion. And so God cast Lucifer, now known as Satan, to earth, along with the rebellious angels, now known as demons. And, and here's a fact, hell, right? We preach hell. Hell was created for the devil, Satan, and his demons, so there it is in a nutshell. However, in the here and now, let me say this about demons. Demons are supernatural beings that I believe are all around us in the spiritual realm, still possessing unbelievers and oppressing believers. If you want to talk more about that, buy me coffee this week at Just Be Kind, and we can go a little deeper into that. In the New Testament, Many times, if you just look off the pages and, and, and see what was going on, the, the medical issues of humans, uh, they were actually being possessed by demons. Um, Jesus or his disciples would cast out the demons and the health issue or the medical condition would go away. I would suggest this is probably the reality of our day. It's just diagnosed away by medical ter terms or excused away by health issues. I am not saying, look at me, I am not saying every sickness is a demon. Don't go around trying to cast out demons when you see people sick. I am not saying that. Say that out loud. He is not saying that. Turn to your neighbor, say, he's not saying that. But I am saying 
There are probably many physical conditions today that are influenced by spiritual darkness more than physical disease. It happened in the old, or it happened in the scriptures, Old Testament, New Testament. Okay? Very prevalent. There are stories all around the world of this happening. You don't hear of it so much. I'm not convinced that God has blessed the old USA and the demons can't cross the boundaries of the country. I just believe we've learned to excuse it away or label it another thing. Okay? And so we just need to be aware that there is a spiritual battle going on around us. Not everybody sick is possessed by a demon, okay? I'm just saying that we need to be conscious of this, this truth, that there is a spiritual realm that we cannot see that is influencing. It is, there is still possession for the unbeliever. But even for us that are believers, I think that we can be oppressed by the darkness. Mark and Luke both record the same story that Matthew gives us here. In fact, they give us more insight into these men's lives. Let me share it on the screen. For example, in Luke chapter eight, here's what it says about the man that was possessed. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside of town. And so here we're getting this, this picture, right, of this crazy guy that he has no clothes on and he lives in the graveyard. And then Mark says this in Mark 5, 3 through 5. This man lived in the burial caves and could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrists and smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he... Now, if you come across a sick person that's able to break chains, maybe we should consider there might be a more at work here than just a, a sickness, right? Like he might be more than crazy. There might be some possession here, okay? Anyway, let's go on. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. And then Matthew's words in Matthew eight twenty eight, they came out of the tombs. They were violent. No one could go to that area. They just kind of fenced it off. They stayed away. Don't go because there's some crazy people that have some mental illness living amongst those grave sites. So most people saw these as just madmen. But here's what I want us to see this morning, that these were men that had lost everything good in their life. You're gonna see in a moment, they had families, and now they are cast away from anyone they've ever loved, and nobody could come around them, and their life was completely shed. They, they had lost everything good in their lives due to this demonic possession. Wearsby says it this way, this dramatic incident is most revealing. It shows that what Satan does for a man. He robs him of sanity. He robs him of self-control. He fills him with fears. He robs him of the joys of his home and his friends. And if possible, he condemns him to an eternity of judgment. Jesus said that, didn't he? That there's a thief who comes to steal, kill, and destroy, right? Matthew says, as Jesus... Jesus being the third character in our story. As, as he gets out of the boat, these men come running towards him. We're gonna pick it up in Matthew 8, 29. They began screaming here. I don't think these are the men. These are the, the, the demons now speaking through the men. Why are you interfering with us, son of God? Interesting, the demons knew who Jesus was, okay? Have you come here to torture us before God's appointed time? They also seem to be aware of their future destiny. As they mentioned torture, it's a, it's a reference of their future, that they seem to know that judgment is coming and they will be cast into a lake of fire. 
But notice the request in verse 30. There just happened to be this large herd of pigs feeding in the distance. Now, Mark and Luke give greater details. Not just a large herd, about 2,000 pigs. Now, it's not that Mark counted them. I'm sure he asked the herdsman. He got some record of the story after. He's like, how many did you lose? About 2,000 pigs. So the demons begged, if you cast us out. And by the way, I did the, the, the numbers on that. Uh, 2,000 pigs today is, comes out to about $750,000. Uh, that's how much just in the herd. Now, we're not talking about them having more pigs and, and there being multiplication, and, and this was their livelihood, right? And so the demons are having this conversation with Jesus. Uh, if you're gonna cast us out, would you at least send us into the herd of pigs? And Jesus commands them to go, and so the demons come out of the men and they enter the pigs, and the whole herd plunges down this steep hillside and the lake, into the lake, and they're drowned with water. Now, I did not count the pigs as a character of our story. Some of you animal lovers might. But I do want to count the herdsmen of these pigs. Because it goes on to say in verse 33, the herdsmen fled to the nearby town, telling everyone what happened to the demon-possessed men. Probably more accurate uh, conclusion would be here that they went into town to tell everyone what happened to their pigs. Um, the herdsmen watched their herd of pigs, their livelihood, in a moment go insane and kill themselves. 2,000 pigs, again, the equivalent of almost a million dollars, jumping off a cliff and dying. We cannot make light of this moment because this would have been devastating. Imagine everything you would ever work for. Imagine the very thing that, that helps put a roof over your head and food, the very livelihood that supports your life. Watching it go up in smoke, watching it go off a cliff in an instant. So we're not gonna make a joke here because these men are broken and they're mad. And uh, my initial reaction is to question, why would Jesus allow this to happen? Okay, as I'm reading the story this week, I, I immediately go, it just seems like to me, God, it just seems like the demons received what they were wanting. And in the process of you giving them what they wanted, they caused more destruction, they ruined more lives in the process. It doesn't seem fair, does it? These herdsmen just happened to be in the area. They weren't even a part of the whole conversation. These pigs had done nothing wrong. And honestly, when I read this story, from the viewpoint of the herdsmen, it made me mad. I feel like the spirit said, good. Should make you mad. Because the works of the devil, all of the destruction to our lives and the lives of the people around us should be making us angry. And it's not fair. Sin has cost us any fairness in life. When we understand the gospel narrative of that, is that, of that God created everything very good, but sin broke everything and made it very broken, very bad. In that moment, we've lost any kind of fairness in this world. Sin gave birth to death, and death is all we are promised because of man's rebellion against God. Anything other than death is God's mercy towards us. 
Satan and his demons still kill and destroy. So everything that hasn't been stolen, killed, or destroyed is only, is only not been killed, still, or destroyed because it's under God's gracious protection. Do you understand that? In the physical realm, it looks unfair. In the spiritual realm, we've got to see that God is protecting us from the destruction of Satan and all of his army of darkness. The story that the herdsmen went back and they told the town, the story was not favorable to God. We know that because of the response to the news. In verse 34, the entire town comes out to meet Jesus and all they've heard is the story from the herdsmen and their only response to that story is they beg Jesus. They beg him, leave. Leave us alone before you do any more damage. You see, lost in all of this is the fact that Jesus has just delivered two men from demon possession, completely healed them, Insane men are now sane. Wild and violent men are now normal and calm. But the focus of the town is not on restored lives, but rather on their fiscal losses. The town chose the side of pigs over people. And we cannot, in this room this morning, pass judgment because we do the same. In fact, we have, come on, just be honest for a moment, at some point, you and I have asked Jesus to leave us alone for much less than a million dollar fiscal loss. Somebody cut you off in traffic on the way home Friday and you're like, God, leave me alone for just a moment. Somebody gossiped about you this week or said something about you and you said, God, I need you to leave me alone for just a moment. We, we've all done this. The town had learned to stay away from the tombs. They had gotten good at ignoring the problem so the people would rather live in denial at best or fear at worst more than losing their livelihood. Jesus, we are better off, we were better off before you came. Please leave us alone. So Jesus left and that's all the story that Matthew gives us. Thankfully, Mark and Luke are a little bit more detailed in their story than, than Matthew. And so it does continue. Let's pick it up in Mark. Look at um, verse 18. As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed, demon-possessed, begged to go with him. Of course he did. Jesus radically changed this man's life. Jesus saved him. Of course he is going to beg Jesus, let me follow you, right? That's why Jesus didn't have to go around begging people to follow him. When someone drastically changes your life, you naturally gravitate your allegiance towards them. You wanna be with them. If we, ha if we have to keep begging Christians to follow Jesus, they're probably not Christians. The man begs to go with Jesus. And in verse 19, Jesus responds 
as saying, no. That don't seem very Jesus-like. Another disciple, right? Jesus had other plans for this man. Look, continue in verse 9. Jesus says, no, I need you to go home to your family. And I need you to tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the 10 towns of that region and he began proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed at what he told them. You know what I thought as I read that? Is it possible that Jesus just gave this once demon-possessed man the great commission before he actually gave the great commission in Matthew 28? I need you to go back home, and I need you to declare what you have experienced here. Tell, tell everybody what I have done. You go and tell everyone, everywhere, everything the Lord has done for you. See, it's just six verses but I believe it's six verses that are telling an overarching story of God invading a forsaken place to deliver forsaken men from a forsaken evil. And if that sounds familiar, it's because it is the gospel story. It is our story as well. From the moment Adam and Eve sinned in Genesis 3, God has been delivering his people. He delivered Adam and Eve from their shame and nakedness by pro providing covering. He delivered Noah from a flood. He delivered Moses as a baby from death. He delivered Israel over. He delivered Israel from the Red Sea, from Egypt. And then, by the way, just story after story after story of the Old Testament is God's deliverance of his people from evil kings and their own cycle of sin. Over and over and over, God is delivering them. Then God wrapped himself in flesh and walked among us, delivering us from sickness and disease and demons. But ultimately, he came to deliver us from our sin and God's wrath against it. We too were possessed by sin and Jesus took it upon himself and he died on the cross. We too have a story of deliverance. We were blinded by sin, but now we can see, right? We were deaf to the voice of God, but now we can hear. We were dead in our sins, but now we have life in Christ. Jesus drank every last drop of the cup of God's wrath. There's no grit, there's no death, there's no grave, there's no hell, there's no condemnation. There is no wrath. Believer, you have been delivered. Now, we have been empowered by the Spirit of God to go tell everyone, everywhere, everything that the Lord has done for us. If you have not yet believed in Jesus, repent and believe the gospel. Believe that Jesus died and arose victorious for you on your behalf. If you have not yet believed in Jesus, repent, believe the gospel, confess that Jesus is Lord, bow your heart and your knee to his authority. And if you are a believer here this morning, rejoice in God's delivery. Commit your life to telling your story of God's gracious deliverance. We are going to end our time this morning in just a moment by 
taking communion together. In response to this good news story from Matthew 8, we're going to end by taking communion together. Jesus asked us to come to the Lord's table in remembrance of what he has done for us, right? In, in a moment, you're gonna be invited to come. There's, there's, there's juice and a wafer here. There's juice and a wafer in the back. And you're gonna be invited to raise the cup and to break bread together in celebration of Jesus' deliverance of us. For by his broken body and shed blood, we are now more than conquerors through him. His perfect life was sufficient in swallowing up our sinful life. His death was sufficient for the wages of our sins. His resurrection is sufficient for our victory over death and the grave. And we praise him for being a sufficient deliverer. And if there is something you are waiting for this morning, deliverance from. If there is something you are waiting for delivery from right now in your life, you wait knowing Jesus has delivered you before and he will do it again. That's what we do. We wait with our eyes fixed upon the one that doesn't forsake us and time after time after time is faithful to deliver us. And that's why we raise the cup and we take of the bread because it reminds us that if he didn't leave us in our darkest hour, he's not gonna leave us now. If he has delivered us from sin, what else could stand against us? He will deliver us. Listen, death, sin, death, and the grave, he's delivered us from. He's got you. Whatever it is that's weighing you, I'm not trying to make light of whatever it is that you need delivery from. But I'm telling you, whatever it is, it is light compared to sin, death, and the grave. And the cup and the bread reminds us of that. It's a reminder of the invitation to come and lay those burdens, to lay those cares, those fears at his feet. Because if he has delivered us in the past, he will deliver us in the future. Father, thank you for being faithful. Thank you for the many examples of scripture of you delivering your people. Thank you for the many stories that you've given us in our own lives of your faithful deliverance. And God, perhaps here this morning, we need to be reminded of that once again because of something we're struggling with, something that we're facing, something that we're going through. God, that as we take communion this morning, may we declare as your people that you are a great and faithful deliverer. And that today we can leave here with our eyes on you, not on our problems, not on the things that are before us that we feel like there's no hope, no way out. God, our eyes are staying fixed on you. If you've delivered us in the past, you will deliver us in the future. We have the assurance of that because of your life 
your death, and your resurrection. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to sing, but this is your invitation. You can come forward. You can go to the back and get your communion. And you take of the cup that represents his blood shed, and you take of the bread that represents his body broken. And you do so in remembrance that he is faithful and that he has delivered you and that he will do it again. Would you do that? Let's do that now. running out of time 